and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. First of all, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. If you're unfamiliar with my work, I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach where I get to work with a diverse population of athletes and executives and sports teams and corporate organizations. And I love the work that I do. So I fired up this podcast to learn and to learn from intentional performers who are thinking deeply and thoughtfully about how they're showing up to be their best. And if you like today's conversation, please share it. Share it on social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, wherever it is your social. It really helps us expand our reach. And if you like today's conversation, we would really appreciate it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review and gave us a rating. Once again, it helps us continue to get these amazing people's voices and stories and journeys and wisdom out into as many people's ears as possible. Now to today's guest. Chris Sparks is the founder of The Forcing Function, which is a company which is empowering the next generation of entrepreneurs by transforming the way that they think about work. And Chris was once ranked in the top 20 in online poker, and we're going to talk a lot about his experience playing online, also playing in person, and what the psychological differences and similarities are of that work. And now he trains executives and investors to deploy some of the techniques he used to gain a competitive edge so that they too can reach their highest limits. Chris is a journeyman. He is somebody who has explored the world. He's going to talk about that as well. But he's also grounded and has done a lot of deep and personal work on himself to develop himself to be the best version of himself. So after spending years of deconstructing and distilling the success of top performers, Chris open sourced that knowledge in a free workbook experiment without limits and he'll talk about that workbook in this conversation he is currently hosting workshops and retreats around new york city and he is constantly helping clients consistently perform at their peak accelerate their business growth and build lives with greater freedom and purpose so without further ado i'm so excited to present to you chris sparks chris excited to have you on the podcast we connected on twitter uh, I think I followed you first. It's kind of like who who asked you out first? You know, who said I love you first? It's like the same type of thing. Uh, and I think I followed you because maybe you posted something, and Steve Schlafman, a mutual friend of ours, might have retweeted it. I, I looked at you. I'm like, oh, poker coaching, interesting. And so here we are, and excited to learn from you today about poker first of all, and and peak performance, but also about your work with. Uh, professionals in, in the corporate world as well. So I think we'll have plenty to chat about. I'm excited to learn from you. What we haven't covered before we started recording is your upbringing and what your story is. So I'd love to start there, get a sense of what young Chris was like, and <laughs> just give us some context into your life before you became an adult. Young Chris. Hey, guys. Uh, awesome to be here. Thanks, Brian. Uh, 
So I've been saying that I've always been curious about how we make decisions. As I try to, you know, look back, uh, that seems like the thread that has tied a lot of what I've done together. Um, so growing up, my dream was to make television commercials, and I was very fascinated by how do we make decisions, and in this sense, how can we be nudged to choose one product over another? And you know, generally, commercials work by they they look at what our infinite values are, things that we want to emulate. And try to associate the brand by telling a story that if you consume this product, then you will be able to achieve this infinite value. You will have a better relationship with your family. You will have better relationships with your friends. You will you will take you know meaningful, risky adventures that are fun with your friends. You'll you know have integrity, all this type of stuff. And it was how do we tell stories that influence the way that we make decisions and. Uh, I'll fast forward a bit. Um, I came out of the uh, came out of college in 2008, which um, it seems like history is rhyming a little bit. It was a it was a pretty tough time to be a recent grad. Um, I accepted a position with uh, Ford um, because you know at the time they were the uh, the world's largest uh, television advertiser. I figured that was a good place to start, um, and I was in kind of the unlucky, which became very lucky position of being in hiring purgatory, where Ford, I was hired, I moved up to Detroit, but wasn't able to start working. And so I had a little bit of a hobby through uh, college when, you know, I was able to forego sleep, essentially, because I was the, you know, chronic overachiever in college, uh, where I was playing poker. So I've always been very, very into games. Um, you know, my uh, my friends affectionately called me, you know, the, the worst winner that they know uh, is, you know, I love to win everything. I turn everything into a game. Um, you know, primarily I, I started by playing uh, this game called Microsoft Ants. Um, and so that was like a very early real-time strategy game, um, kind of a precursor to Age of Empires or StarCraft, if anyone's a gamer on this, on this show. Um, ended up becoming, you know, the best player in that, in that small player pool. Um, and then I got into card games. Um, you know, I started off in chess, progressed to over to uh, gin rummy, just kind of a two-player um, rummy. As some similarities to heads up poker, um, you know, game of imperfect information, and uh, achieved a perfect rating in gin. And some of my gin friends said, "Hey, you know, there's this game called poker." And they're actually giving you money if you win. And to this point, you know, it only been for, for bragging rights. And I was sitting on, you know, my parents dial up internet with a single line where, if, you know, someone else, someone gave a call, I'd be disconnected from my game uh, and said, hey, you know, why don't I give this poker a try? Started playing some free rolls and gained a little bit of experience that set me up for when we get, when I got to college in 2004, poker all of a sudden was on every single channel on TV. So you turn it on ESPN, travel channel, at any given point at prime time, you were going to see the World Series of Poker. And if you were, you know, a red-blooded young man at this point, this is what you did for fun. You know, we didn't go out. Uh, we stayed in the dorms and we played poker. And so that's just started kind of earning some, uh, some beer money until uh, you know, a couple of my friends who I didn't think were particularly good players said, oh, hey, I made 10K playing online poker last night. I'm like, wait, wait a second, that's like more money than I've ever seen. Maybe I should give this a try. And that became kind of a side hustle through college in order to pay my way through school, pay off my tuition. Hey, Chris, um, and Chris, before, before we get into, I'm gonna, we're going to cover poker. Just back to childhood real quick. Where'd you grow up? What was your family like? What were your hobbies? Paint that picture for us a little bit. Um, grew up in the Midwest, uh, Cleveland, played sports, uh, not particularly well, but I tried hard. Um, baseball and soccer were my main sports. Um, you know, through, through the summer, I played baseball every single day. Um, lots of board games, you know, strategy games, video games, that type of thing. Um, very into, you know, statistics, uh, psychology, you know, I, I had the stats of all of my favorite players memorized. That was kind of a a favorite party trick is they would name a player and I could read off all of their current stats. Um, 
had all of like the world atlas memorized, you know, population data, you know, main animals that were local to the region, that sort of thing. Um, Chris, were you labeled as like gifted and talented in, in school? Um, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I started, I started kindergarten early. Um, I was kind of like a, in terms of intelligence, I was a, I was a big fish in a small pond. Um, I, I think, you know, I went to a very small school and it allowed me to kind of coast a little bit relatively. Um, I do think I, you know, I, I probably was a little bit gifted, but, um, I think a lot of it really was just, you know, extreme curiosity where, um, you know, learning was always really fun for me. And it, you know, if it was something that I was interested in, it never really took as much effort. Uh, siblings? Uh, younger sister, three years younger. Is she similar or different in, in that way? Um, I think I would have said we were polar opposites growing up. I think as I grow older and more mature, I start to see the similarities. And mom and dad's parents, what were they like? Um, I mean, parents super supportive, I think. Uh, so my, my mom uh, manages an animal hospital. My dad's a uh, musician, builds uh, pipe organs, so very, very handy with his hands. That's double entendre, I suppose. Uh, and I, I think they were they were always kind of very supportive of what I was doing, trying to to propel me forward. Um, I think, you know, my mom in particular came to every game that I ever played. Um, so, you know, total saints. Uh, and I think they really gave me permission to explore my own interests. And so even as, you know, the system tried to corral me into typical interests, you know, you must do something that is legible to the corporate world. Um, I was given a lot of, you know, freedom to explore my interests and, you know, to the extent that they can, um, you know, my, my parents made a lot of sacrifices in order to put me into, you know, a decent school and to, you know, be able to do, you know, some classes in order to, ampl you know, amplify my learning where, you know, school fell short. Um, you know, they allowed me the opportunities to, you know, be able to discover for myself that there, there are, it's a big world out there and you, you don't have to, you know, listen to the playbook necessarily. What were some of the values that they passed down to you and your sister? Um, I think uh, it, um, persistence, <laughs> these are tough because they're questions I didn't anticipate. So I'm forced to go off cuff. Uh, I think persistence and hard work. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of like the, the typical Midwestern values um, that, you know, people come first, um, that, you know, you earn in order to support others that you know there's there's no sense of you know one man being an island that you know everything you do affects other people um i think you know very very values driven um and i and i think i i really respected how both of them you know really pursued their passions um you know my dad is obsessed with classical music obsessed with um you know the instruments that produce it and knew that from a young age and was able to you know, make a career of that. And, you know, his work is his passion. Um, the same, you know, my mom, you know, loves medicine, loves animals. And, you know, it's, they found a way to support themselves doing something that they love that gave them a lot of, you know, purpose. And so it was, for me, growing up, I'd never had the view that a job was just a way to make money. But I saw that, you know, you could have a profession that brought you a lot of meaning and purpose that created value for others, but also allowed you to support yourself. And so, you know, I, I always was looking out for what was the thing that I wanted to do that I would do for free anyways, that just happened to pay. And you mentioned commercials and marketing and that caught your interest. How old were you when that became something that you felt like was a path, a career path for you? Uh, I'd say it really coalesced in college, um, freshman year. Uh, you know, if I'm being frank, I had really no idea what I wanted to do before then. All of the, you know, yeah, that was like the first time that I, that I kind of got, I don't know if realistic is the word, but 
you know, what, what is a, what is a mold into which that I can, you know, put my personality, what's something that I can fit into. Um, and it seemed like it's something that was, it had sufficient room for creativity and leverage, right? Something that if you're very, very good at, people will beat the path to your door. Um, but also something that fit the kind of expectations for, you know, even when I was being very successful with poker, there was never this idea that I was going to do it professionally. It was like a temporary vacation type thing. Um, and so I, I needed to slot into something that was in demand. Um, and I think that that reality didn't really hit until I got to college. And so you start having success playing poker. When does it become a reality that, it, you know, I might be able to do this full time as opposed to work for Ford? Um, <laughs> so again, I mean, while I'm in college, uh, in my, you know, my rent is a thousand dollars a month and that's more or less my only expense because I was rating, you know, all the student organizations I was president of that would, we'd, we'd get, you know, sponsored Domino's pizza. And I was, I was having, getting free, free pizza every day for food. Um, you know, this is before I discovered what a gym was. Uh, I, <laughs> five, five, I was, five deal. You guys get the five, five, five deal. That's five, 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 five always. Yeah. <laughs> for those too old or too young to know what the five, five, five deal is, you would get, uh, you get three medium pizzas. Uh, if you ordered three medium pizzas, you would get each of them for five dollars. And I think you could put whatever toppings you want on it. Is that what the five 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 deal was? I think uh, one 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 topping. One, one topping. topping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a uh, a, a lot of late night uh, five 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 Domino's uh, pizza coming in college. Yeah, it's it's fun to think back to those times because I said like in, in high school. So I started playing poker seriously when I was sixteen. And, and I would play for 16 or 20 hours straight for the opportunity to win $1,000 if I beat out 20,000 players, right? Second place gets nothing, first place gets 10,000. Um, and then freshman year, I start playing small games in the dorms where in a good night, you know, I might make 100 or $200. There was, there was one night early freshman year, um, I won a there was a tournament on campus and I won it for $500 and I brought the check home and you would have thought that I, you know, won a car and the price is right or something. You know, I, I spent most of that check buying everyone drinks at the bar last night, learned that, that lesson the hard way to, you know, keep the checks to myself. Um, but, you know, by the time junior, senior year comes around, I'm, you know, making what my annual salary would have been at Ford every month playing, you know, you know, a dozen hours a week. And, but still, it, it's, that ha it hadn't hit that this was a career path for me. Um, it was still, it was still like, oh, this is nice, and I hope it lasts a little bit longer. It wasn't until you know the the carpet and pulled and pulled out under me that this this you know the the veil had been lifted from my eyes that you know this this corporation really doesn't have my back. Um, that is like, oh well, why don't I do the thing where I'm making you know multiples more in money you know, from my apartment instead for a while. Um, I think it, it, that was the moment that it really clicked is when I got that, that push. And when it was funny is when I told friends that they're like, well, yeah, of course we were wondering, <laughs> we were wondering how long it was going to take for you to quit. But in my mind, I, I was just so set on this vision of, you know, I'm, you know, I, I was very goal oriented at this, at this moment. Uh, you know, I wanted to be, you know, CMO of a Fortune 500 company by the age of 30. And I was like, well, this is the path. If I want to do that, this is what I have to do. And then I do this and I do this. And it wasn't until that that path was no longer a reality. I said, oh, oh, there's this other path. Why don't I do that instead? So it's interesting when it, you think of poker or you think of gaming, gaming, you could be a pro gamer now. That wasn't something that existed uh, when. Sure. I, I've worked with a few pro gamers. Yeah. Like that wasn't a thing when we graduated college and 10 years before you decided to go the path you went down with poker, that wasn't a thing. And so they're non-traditional paths. And I know I have a friend whose friend became a pro poker player and I graduated a little bit before you and we were kind of like, what do you mean? He's going to be a pro poker player. Like go get a job, dude. Like did people react, especially maybe people that were older? I don't know how your parents reacted. What, what was the response when, you know, it sounds like you were pretty smart guy or you're, you're good with numbers. You're good with psychology. 
were there people in your ear saying, no, go apply yourself, go get a job somewhere else, even though it's 2008, 2009, where there's not that much available out there. What was the response to people around you? Um, I think very polarized. Um, I don't think, you know, my parents would mind me saying now is, you know, when I first told them that, hey, like that whole job thing is not going to work out and I'm going to do this instead. Um, they were still telling their friends for a while that I was job searching because it was more, more respectful in their mind that I was hitting the streets with my resume and getting rejected than I was doing something that was very kind of non-traditional. Um, and, you know, to their credit, um, I think once they saw me succeeding, I think getting a little bit of press coverage and validation, um, you know, helped accelerate that they, they, they quickly came, came around and it's something, you know, to be very proud of, um, you know, they see the hard work and effort that, that went into it, that it wasn't just gambling, that it was treated like a job. Um, and I had, I had some friends who were you know, extremely, extremely supportive, kind of, you know, celebrity status. It's sort of like you're living the dream man type thing. Um, you know, you know, friend, you know, friends who were actually acquaintances who would, you know, brag about knowing me and they saw me on TV type thing. Um, and that was like kind of cool for like young Chris who always, you know, never felt like enough and annoying for older Chris saying, well, hey, like you, you, you actually weren't there. And then there was like the kind of the third group, um, which, which always kind of struck me as jealous that, um, you know, it's like, oh, you know, you, you never really had it hard. You just got really lucky. Um, you know, anyone could do that sort of thing. And just, you know, the typical where you have friends who aren't really friends, who your success, you know, casts a mirror on their own failures, um, that the assumption was, hey, you know, I won a lottery ticket, not that I like literally spend 80 hours a week studying something and honing my game in order to have the success. Um, but you know, to each their own. You said something that I don't want to gloss over, which is young Chris sort of was, was never enough. Like I was always trying to become more. Can you just pull on that thread a little bit? Yeah, I think it extends to today. Um, I talk about experimentation a lot and I am always looking for opportunities to improve. And I think that is the key to success in any endeavor is constantly looking for small improvements and being aware of what is that next dimension. Um, this is, you know, normally talked about as deliberate practice. And this, this, there's two sides of this coin, right? One is if you're aware of the opportunities, you can capitalize them. But there's also the, the downside of that. Every strength is an inverted weakness in this way that wherever I was, always I was aware of where I could be. And so, you know, growing up um, and even today sometimes um, when that, that scarcity mindset creeps up, um, there's, you know, a failure to celebrate how far you've come, classic you know, cognitive distortion type stuff where, you know, a small thing goes awry and you over extrapolate to everything that's going to happen. And I, and I think growing up, um, you know, sometimes lacking, lacking the right mentorship, lacking the right, um, you know, push as far as, Hey, like, you know, none of this stuff that you think matters at this moment really matters. Um, that there was a bit of, um, is a bit maybe like overcompensating on that side. Um, you know, well, we, we probably have a heavy sports audience, so I'll, I'll kind of use a, a sports sports metaphor. So like I hopped, you know, nine years old, I hopped into a baseball league, had never, you know, never held a bat or a ball before. And I'm, you know, probably one of the least gifted uh, athletes there are. And uh, my, uh, my first, uh, and this is the first year of kid pitch, and my, my first uh, 100 at bats, um, I either I either walked or struck out. And it was like either like I walked if they just threw, you know, four really far balls and I struck out if they threw strikes. And it took, you know, it took uh, like 10 games into the season to get on base for the first time. Um, ended up like, you know, probably two for whatever on the season. 
Uh, and it was, it was super, super tough for me to be faced with something that I was so obviously bad at, but I loved so very much. And as you kind of alluded to earlier, is like so many things just came very easy for me growing up, uh, especially on the learning side. And um, this, was the, this was kind of the exception. And I realized I found something that if I wanted to be successful at it, I was going to have to work way harder than everyone else. And so I did. And, you know, fast forward, you know, five years later, uh, it's like team MVP, you know, made it to the state all-star team, not because I was any good. Um, I, you know, I played center field. I was, I was pretty fast. It was really good defensively, mostly because, you know, I studied my opposition and I knew where they hit the ball and I could position myself very well, cover a lot of ground, you know, very good at bunting, very good at kind of, you know, Ichiro Suzuki style, slapping it through the infield. Um, but I realized, like, well, if I want to be successful, like, this is the hand that I've been dealt. And so I need to find a way within the constraints that I've been dealt to win. Um, I, and I did. And I had to work way harder than everyone else. But you don't get rewarded for working harder, right? Like, you turn a, you turn a paper in growing up into class. Teacher doesn't ask you how many hours you spent writing it. It's like, is the paper good or not? And um, sounds like for poker, though, you were obsessed with it, you worked hard at it, and you were talented at it. Is that is that right? You had you had sort of a, a, a whether it's the psychology or the numbers or probably both, but also uh, then you you worked at it. Poker is not you didn't start with poker in the same way you started at baseball. Am I missing that or am I right on that? No, I think you've you've made a great connection there, and that's kind of the pattern that I was laying out is I think we have that success happens at the intersections. And I had this combinatorial experience of things that um, I either excelled at or was really passionate about growing up. And when I stumbled upon poker, it was very fortuitous because of the opportunity to combine all of these weird ninja skills that I had accumulated. And it created this kind of perfect storm to the point that, you know, it was a positive feedback loop or a Matthew effect, you know, to the victors go more winnings. Um, and not only was I already at a head start once poker became, you know, started to boom and became a lot more lucrative, but because of these systems that I had in place for learning, I was able to improve much faster than my competition. You said something else where you talked about this idea of learning more, becoming, 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 keep growing, improving. And I'm obsessed with this idea of becoming and, and being because I think a lot of our society suggests just become, 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 get more, improve, grow, 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 grow. And it's interesting what everyone's going through right now because this virus is making a lot of people have to just be. Like there's not, there's limited capacity for them to improve. Now we can make an argument that there's actually more room and more space for them to become and grow. But for me, at least I've got two small kids at home and like the other day in between work, I went outside and just threw him the wiffle ball and he was just hitting the wiffle ball. And just that, that memory and that space of being, and this morning I had a call with a client and my daughter walked in and she came and gave me a hug and a kiss. And those are moments that are just precious. And life is about being uh, and becoming. Um, but it sounds like you were so focused on becoming. I'm curious as you start to rise and, and start to get successful at poker, did you have spaces where you could be and you, like appreciate what you were doing? Or how did you handle the becoming and growing and improving and, and competing? Yeah, I love that framing. Um, I think today, I, with the benefit of a little bit more of an objective perspective, um, I'm able to be a lot more. And a lot of that is kind of intentional and habit driven. And a lot of this becoming, um, I look back and I find it, I find it lacking um, in, in happiness because it was, I was, my identity was over indexed on, on one pursuit, um, which, you know, for anyone that hasn't played poker before, you know, even the best players in the world only win 52% of the time. Um, so more often than not, you know, at the end of the day, you feel, you feel a bit like a failure and it's, it's, it's very, very tough to sustain those mental punches in the face every day and st still keep showing up. 
Um, I love talking about a game. Um, you know, I know, I know, Brian, you're passionate about mental game, and there's this obsession in society with who is the best. Um, but there's there's this lack of focus on consistency, this showing up and being, and you know, something that I've discovered in poker that extends to any pursuit is that it's not how good you are on your best day. It's raising the floor so that like, how are you able to be consistent at that level every day? Um, and I think we, we honestly have the luxury now of taking a step back from our lives and things that we were, were really driven to improve that with the benefit of some perspective realized like really weren't all that important. Um, you know, I like to say that your business is subservient to your life, that we can, we can get the two commingled sometimes that, you know, if we, if our business isn't going well, we aren't doing well, when really, it's just one aspect of our personality, our identity, our purpose here on this earth. And like, wow, like, what a exciting time to be alive. It's going to be, it's going to be tough. It's going to be brutal at times, we're going to feel the pain hopefully not personally, but certainly empathetically of what's happening. But if nothing else, it's a blessing to remember that like, hey, we're here and have the luxury of having this conversation. We're going to jump around a bit as far as the timeline and the story. So we'll come back and, and talk more about poker. But you mentioned something about your habits that you have now and that you do things now to make sure that you're being, what are, what are some of the intentional things that you do to make sure you're being your best self? Yeah, I, I love that. And that's that's really my definition of performance. Uh, what is the things that you can do on a consistent basis so that your best self shows up, right? So there's various versions of you, and presumably there are versions of yourself that are more equipped to face your daily challenges. And I think now more than ever, having these supporting habits in place is so important that you know it's important that they survive war times these just aren't, they aren't peacetime habits they they extend to game days um and so i, I really talk about routines quite a bit um i'll give a tiny plug here i have a, a workbook online called experiment without limits um you know workbook isn't really a fair title it's a hundred page breakdown of all of my habits systems routines uh tactics for improving your performance so check that out um, and, you know, one of my favorite chapters in there is chapter four, where I break down routines, or maybe a better way of thinking about them is rituals, things that you can do consistently, that allow you to perform at a higher level. And so there's a lot of talk about morning routines, and everyone tries to take someone else's morning routine off the shelf. So I wouldn't encourage you to do that. But think more about the principles behind what are the things that you can do every day that allow you to perform better. And so for me, I'm trying to make that first two hours very consistent, that having that structure in place, for that first hour where I have habits such as, you know, reading, um, planning and reflection, meditation, um, getting some movement going, so body weight exercises, stretching, uh, you know, free writing in my journal, that type of stuff. And then an hour of work on my most important task, which has been pre-planned before. And so that first two hours of the day, having that in place allows me a lot of creativity the whole rest of the day. That if the two, two, two hours goes as I'd like them to, I'm already starting out at a ten, seven out of 10 day. Um, and you know everything else is a bonus. I could take the rest of the day off and I already had a good day. And I think that's the right approach to have. Um, the other key routines that I talk about a lot, well, you know, we'll have two pairs of bookends here. Um, second, you know, second bookend is, you know, how you start the day is how you finish the day. And so setting yourself up to, you know, unplug from everything, spend time with the people you care about, have a great night of sleep. Um, and so, you know, wind down, you know, pre-bed routine. And then for your work, so whatever that is, whether you're you know, you're playing or you're in an office or, you know, you're whatever, you, however you define your mission or your work, having a routine in place before you start, and before you stop. So before you start, that you have everything you need, that you're going to be able to focus, you're not going to be distracted, you know what you're going to do when you sit down, how you end, that you're able to leave everything on the field, close those loops, put things behind you, create a clear separation. 
um, you know, having those bookends in place. Um, you know, one of the one of my favorite studies shows that you can have literally any ritual in place. Like the ritual itself doesn't actually matter, but having something that you do consistently before and after an activity increases the discipline, increases your follow through with it. Um, and so it's it's one of the, the key you know weapons in our arsenal in order to perform at a high level is putting these in place. I love how tangible all that is. And I, I took a, a gander, I think that's the right word, through your workbook and there's all kinds of models and helpful information. So I definitely recommend people check that out. And I love how specific and intentional you are about morning and then evening routine also does not get talked about enough. I love how you said it. It's what starts your next morning, something along those lines. Um, I know for me, that's where I get into trouble is I stay up late and then it's 12 o'clock and then I'm tired. And then it's hard to get out of bed. And, you know, I, I, I run into the same issue. I have a hard time winding down when I nail my night routine and the morning flows from there. I want to, yeah, go ahead. If you're sprinting, you need to be able to unplug completely, right? The, the intensity of how you can operate at full capacity is proportional to your ability to completely shut down. And so if you want to perform at a high level, you need to take your recovery just as seriously as you take your performance. Yeah, I think the book that really nails that is Peak Performance, where they talk about stress plus rest equals growth. It's a simple formula. It's super valuable. Recommend people read that book. It's, it's a great read. Back to you and your story. So you're now playing poker. One of the things I'm not sure of is online versus in person, because... I never got into the online poker thing, but I used to have a friend who's very good at math and he used to just sit there while we were watching football on a Sunday and he'd be playing online poker and just be gone. And I was, it wasn't for me probably because I've never been into, I got half of your, half of what you need to be a good poker player. Like I got the psychology piece down. I noticed things, but when it comes to numbers and eh, that ain't my gig. So walk me through the difference between being online and playing in person. And were you better at one of those than the other? And what are the differences? And just unpack that a little bit for us. Sure. I think they're almost two different games. And so clearly you're playing the same game in the sense that all the rules are the same. Um, but you have, you're, you have receiving very different signals. And so if you're sitting across from someone, you have a lot more information to go off of. Um, the classic saying is you're playing the player, not the cards. And as you reach more advanced levels, the cards that you're holding cease to matter all that much. Um, you, you start to operate much more on the meta level. The, you, know, you know, think of like rock, paper, scissors. He knows that I'm going rock, so I should go paper, but he knows that, so I go scissors, operating you know, to eighth level. Um, and it becomes um, this big leveling war. Um, but when you're in person, you have a lot more information to go off of. What's the person's state of mind? You can thin slice a bit more as far as, you know, what they're wearing, how they bought in, the way that they speak, their posture, all that type of stuff. Um, I've always been more successful online, and I'll explain why. Um, even though there's more information in person, presumably, there's a lot more information that can be accessed online if you know where to find it. And that tends to be the statistical information that at our base level, humans are very pattern driven creatures. And so the way that we make decisions is very pattern driven, that when people are put into a similar context, they, they tend to make the same decision. So we, we refer to these as habits, obviously. And so if I can dive into the data, and in many cases, I can access every hand that you've ever played and slice and dice that to the way that I can know in this specific situation what you've done every single time, I can predict what you're going to do. And that's just the first level is we're here, we're in the situation, I have, a, I have a much better idea of what you're going to do. I understand you better than you, I, you understand you, but also I can understand the parts of your game that are the weakest. And I can continually nudge those to into you um, so that you have more and more opportunities to make mistakes. All right, Chris, and so, Chris I'm going to pause you because I'm fascinated by this right now and I want to follow you and make sure I understand it. So when you're playing online, do you have a database of the top 
thousand online players and what some of their habits are? Are you putting them into buckets? Or like, how do you even organize that? And I, I think about data analytics and how it's transformed the way pro sports operate in the last 10 years. And people don't realize it's, it's really been 10 years. It hasn't been more than that. I know Moneyball started the data analytics revolution, but I had been inside NBA teams 10 years ago that were not using numbers to dictate how they were playing. And you see three pointers and layups and free throws today. It's, it transformed how the game is played. It was, it was yeah. absolutely data. Analytics. Three pointers and layups are the only shots taken. Yeah. And we're getting the free throw line. It's like those three things. So, uh, and, and we see that in, in a bunch of other sports in different ways, but you can see it in basketball. Really it's changed the game, but, Walk me through, like, mechanically, what would it look like? Because I'm not seeing it. I'm, I'm not, like, I'm having a hard time envisioning how, how you organized all this data. It seems like it's endless. But walk me yep. through what it would look like for you. Yeah, so, I mean, this is, this is no longer the case. But um, in my heyday, I'd have access to every single hand of online poker ever played and have that in a database and built a proprietary dashboard that updated in real time where I'd have statistics on how you personally play um, in this very situation and have those elevated to me in real time so that I can make this the right decision. Wait, but you, um, built, you built that that whole program? Uh, I did not build the program. Um, that program exists that everyone can use, but you know, typically everyone just uses the off-the-shelf solution. And so I was able to augment and customize that for my own use. So if I, Brian Levinson, and, and this is where I think online poker ran into some challenges because it was, it, there were unfair advantages that people would have, but, but your, your eyes are rolling. No different. Yeah, go. Everyone has access to it. Like anyone, anyone can do it. Um, I think that it's, it's unfair because those who let's say they're, we call them recreational players, um, don't realize that the, these advantages exist. Um, it's, it's not all that different than if I go into a casino in Atlantic City and I'm playing against you in, in a casino. I'm, I'm probably, look, I could get lucky and win, but you, I'm playing against somebody who's a pro and, and you know, it, the odds are stacked against me in that way too. Would you say that's comparable or different? The odds are stacked against no matter what. Um, and so, you know, an online uh, is something to mention here is, you know, I'm generally playing many games at a time. These days, 12, but at my peak, I was playing 30 games at a time, which means, you know, one decision every second for up to 12 hours. Um, and so it's the edge doesn't change, but the action is happening so quickly that if you, um, if you are at the game and you do not have advantage, you lose much quicker, right? Um, it's those advantages are multiplied and compounded. And it, it's also notable that just because, you know, the person is, is on the other side of a screen and I can't see them doesn't mean they're not giving me a lot of information. Even someone who I don't have this data on, who I've never seen before, um, there's a lot of nuances to, you know, speaking through the computer as an intermediary that someone who has a lot more experience is attuned to these these giveaways whereas someone who's inexperienced doesn't realize how much they're giving away <laughs> this, just, this just crept into my head i have to ask it it's it, sometimes things just creep in rounders i mean i'm thinking of rounders and i'm thinking of that movie and first of all how awesome that movie was but as as someone who's in it and in, in poker What's your thought on that movie? And yeah, I'd just leave it open-ended for you. Uh, I think it's still the best cinematic interpretation of poker. Um, the vast majority of movie interpretations get poker wildly wrong. Um, what I like about Rounders is that it doesn't glorify it. You have someone, you know, protagonist Matt Damon, who is pursuing the pipe dream where he had you know, one, one moment against a pro, he won one single hand and extrapolates this out to, I must be, I must be one of the best players in the world. Let me, you know, let me put all of my net worth on the line and go, you know, buy this lottery ticket. It, it, it exposes kind of this irrational confidence that one needs to have in order to sit down in these arenas. 
but also just the factor of you know how luck and one's ability to keep a level head when everything is going against you. You know, obviously it's cinematic, so you don't usually have you know your best friend's life on the line, but it can sometimes feel like everything is going against you and you still need to make the right decision. And I really like that it doesn't kind of James Bond gloss over the fact that there's a lot going on outside of the game that affects your ability to play within the game. And okay, so how long do you just play poker professionally? How long are you just focused on on doing that? So that was from, I, I graduated college in 08 and um, the event uh, Black Friday happened in 2011. So uh, three years full-time professional. So that was about 40 hours of play um, and then another 40 to 60 hours either of studying or uh, I invested in, in a number of players who I'd, who I'd mentor and back in games. And so man, managing that portfolio. What was your mindset when you were researching and you said 40 to 60 hours preparing? And what was your mindset when you were actually competing and performing? So I generally subscribe to, you know, train the way that you play. Um, you know, the studies that you're thinking about studying for a test and you want to study in the same types of conditions that you're going to be taking the test for maximum transference. In the same way, when I'm, when I'm studying a player trying to uncover his weak points or when I'm studying my own game, trying to study situations that I need to understand better, um, because there's always, there's always room to learn. I've been, you know, I played 2 million hands, been doing this for 15 years now, and I still think of myself as a beginner. Um, I am going at full intensity. Um, it's not, it's not your typical like 40 hours a week. Like when I'm playing, I said, I'm making decisions for thousands of dollars, uh, every second for hours on end. And if my, the way that I study is very different from that, right? If I'm laying down in my bed and kind of just clicking around, you know, watching a YouTube video about poker, um, it's not going to transfer to the real situation. And so I try to make that match up as one-to-one -one as possible. And decision to shift out of this in 2011. And, and what did you do after that? Yeah. Um, so the, the big event um, is called Black Friday. And um, in summary, the, it was getting harder and harder to move money back and forth from poker sites to, um, to players. And they decided to buy a bank, and this was uh, this was decided to be bank fraud, and so the the websites got seized. About half my net worth was was uh, was seized along with it. Took a number of years of red tape to get that back. Um, luckily, I was able to, um, and I was kind of taken taken this uh, as a sign from the universe, so to say, that maybe it's a time to move on and pursue all of those, you know, mission type things that I always wanted to do, but, you know, I can't because poker is too damn lucrative. Um, and you reach a certain point, particularly in poker, uh, I, would, I would go to Vegas, you know, to the World Series and the guys who, you know, were, you know, these typical famous poker players who, you know, they're only famous because they were the guys who were playing poker when poker got on TV and they needed characters. Um, I would spend time with them and a lot of them were miserable. It's just like everyone looks to rock stars and says, I want to be a rock star. And most rock stars are completely miserable. It's the same, same type of thing. Not saying poker players are rock stars, but usually the people that we, we look up to, you know, they, they've made a lot of sacrifices and what looks great from the outside isn't necessarily what we're looking for. If you want, if you can't say that someone's successful without knowing what, what variables they're trying to optimize for. But anyway, I looked at these guys. They were super unhealthy. They, they, if they had a wife, you know, they had been divorced multiple times. Like they just poor relationships, uh, spending all their days inside casinos. And I was like, is this the life that I'm looking for? Is this my version of success? And decided that it wasn't. And I said, well, who is succeeding right now? Who do I, who is someone that I would want to emulate? And I really, really looked up to my friends, a lot of whom I originally met through poker. You know, at this point in time, being an online poker player, many of my best friends I had never even met. 
Um, just people I talked to online who once they left poker and started businesses. And it's like, oh, the people who are changing the world are entrepreneurs. Things who are you're creating, they're hiring, that sort of thing is like, I want to be an entrepreneur. And that kind of started this super meandering journey to, you know, how do I get into entrepreneurship, um, which led to, you know, working in startups, um, kind of leveraging my past, you know, marketing background, um, leveraging my, my data background, doing a bunch of analytics work. Um, I did some uh, venture capital for a while, leveraging my, you know, investing in poker players, you know, reading the person type experience. And through kind of a number of pivots, uh, landed on this peak performance piece, which was really just came about because I was keeping in touch with my friends and having the types of conversations that we always did. And one of them asked to pay me. And I was like, well, what does this person do? It's like, oh, I guess they're called a coach. So all of a sudden I was a performance coach. It wasn't something I had set out to do, but I was like, oh, here's, here's something that helps people that I can make money that I love doing and would do for free. Why don't I do that? Um, and it turned out that a lot of the instrumental skills that I had acquired on the way to becoming one of the world's best poker players transferred to a number of other fields as well. And so you've been at that since 2011? Uh, no, Forcing Function, uh, my company started in 2017. Okay, so so you're from 2011 to 2017, you're doing all that other stuff, marketing, VC, uh kind of fi figuring out your way is that right or how clear it was was it kind of muddied waters or how much clarity did you have then <laughs> a lot of experimentation a lot of you know three to 18 month experiments uh as far as like is this the thing um i also you know crossed off most of my bucket list at this point um including i did a, a two-month uh trip around the world where i didn't work at all so um quite a bit of exploration when you are, it's 2011 and half your money's gone, what were you like to be around? Oh, um, <laughs> I was pretty devastated. Um, so I said, yeah, this was, this kind of kicked off the two year trip around the world where I went from, you know, living like in a two year or two month. I realized I said two months. It was two years straight. Yeah. So two years. It's a big difference between two months. So two years you traveled around the world after 2011? Yeah. Where'd you go? And yeah, tell me about that experience. What was that like? Uh, it was very unplanned. Um, I had some friends I wanted to meet up with um, who I'd always wanted to meet. Um, but it was just kind of one destination at a time. Sometimes I would just choose a random number. So, you know, 185 countries, random number generator, one to 185 and go to whatever country came up. Um, a lot of it I spent in hostel dorms. So solo travel, staying with, you know, a lot of, you know, university student types or people on gap year and hanging with them and doing what they did. And so it was a super contrast. I said, like at the, at, at the time in LA, you know, we, we made a little reality show about this moment because it was so ridiculous, you know, living in a multi-million dollar mansion, going out and doing bottle service every night, um, spending, you know, anything that had less than, you know, no comma, less than three zeros was basically free to now, you know, I'm going to take a bus rather than a taxi because I save a couple dollars in Thailand type of thing. Um, one, one story that I always love to share was uh, this was coming to the end of the trip, so uh, 2014. Um, I'm uh, living on a beach in Thailand where I'd been for about a month in this bungalow for $20 a day. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun, but I think it's, it's kind of becoming clear that I'm hitting diminishing returns and that, you know, I'm not super happy. I'm kind of avoiding things. And finally, the money that had been... Um, you know, I'd, I'd almost written off at this point because it's been three years um, from the poker sites that got seized, um, hits my bank account in one lump sum. And so I did the quick calculation that, hey, the money that hit my bank account today, I could live on this beach like a king the rest of my life. And it was the first moment that I was forced to reflect, like, hey, like, is this really what I want to be doing with the rest of my life? Um, you know, what am I like now I know I can do this. So like, what am, you know, what am I avoiding? 
Um, and that's, that's what, that's really what kind of led me back towards, you know, reality, um, so to say, and, uh, you know, working with entrepreneurs, I think in the early going, I was pretty, you know, when it first happened, very, very much in shock, very depressed. Um, I think it, it really informs my ability, you know, as, as we're in kind of a new crisis today, um, to act very decisively and rationally. So like you might imagine, like, overnight this was this was very much like the poker world a black swan um i'm making more money than i'd ever had before i was in the midst of my best month in history and overnight you know my way of earning a living was taken away from me and most of my money i never knew i was going to see again uh most of my friends i never knew if i was going to see again and i was very i felt very kind of lost felt it felt um you know, felt a little bit unfair. Um, and it's like, well, you know, what now are my best days behind me? Right. We're talking about the, like the, the enough fears again. It was like, was that, was, you know, did I, did I, it was my lifetime peak at the age of 21. I hope not. Um, and it, it kind of took feeling that, that pain in order to realize that, there was still a lot missing. Uh, it's like eerily reminiscent to the book and the movie Into the Wild, where you know it's different because you're still here. You've seen the book or movie? You've read the book or seen the movie? Yeah. So, mm -hmm. uh, spoiler alert: <laughs> the, the the main character, and it's based on a true story. You know, dies at the end, and it always stuck with me at the end, where he's writing in the journal, and the movie does a good job of of sharing this and it says happiness only real when shared and i have that vision now of you being at the, in the bungalow on the beach and you know but is that hashtag living the dream living the living the dream and but the realization that wait there's probably more so now you're doing service work and you're in service to people and helping them figure themselves out and develop themselves. What's that been like the last three years since 2017, building that business? Um, how's it been different than those three years playing poker? Um, how's it been similar? I would love to just hear what it's been like for you. Well, it's a lot easier to get out of bed, that's for sure. Um, is there's, there's a real fulfillment knowing that you getting up and doing things is having a positive effect on others. And, um, you know, poker is inherently zero sum, um, you know, money in your pocket is coming out of someone else's. And, and so it's really nice to do things that are positive sum and to expand that pie. And it, it's, it's really made a lot of the things that, I do for fun, um, it's, it's converted them into things that are productive, right? Conser converting my consumption into production and that all of my personal experiments and learnings are able to be converted into a form that allows others to achieve their dreams. And I find that super fulfilling and it's very, it's very on mission to me. And whenever I get lost, um, I think this this is a good piece of advice that I've learned and, and always share is that whenever you're feeling down, you know, I think the word depressed is ever used, but whenever you feel, you know, stuck or overwhelmed, you know, like take the focus away from yourself and think about, you know, what you can be doing for others. Um, we were talking about that earlier in terms of the perspective that if you remove your perspective to there's something that I could be doing to help others around me all of a sudden, all the problems that we've magnified seemingly go away and become much smaller. And so that's the anchor that I come back to is, you know, what can I be doing to accelerate others who I think are doing important things? What have I learned lately that others could benefit from? Um, it really kind of puts my priorities much more into focus. It's interesting as you're talking, there's two things that come up for me. One is I was with a pro athlete the other day and he was talking to me about transitioning and all of a sudden, you know, he's not in hundred thousand, 70,000 person stadiums. And uh, he didn't, he doesn't have the routines and the habits and the schedule and sort of the challenges that come with that transition. And I think about college athletes now who have had their seasons stripped away from them, especially the seniors. 
And I got a phone call from a senior athlete uh, even before all the madness happened with the coronavirus. And the athlete was explaining to me how they already have a job lined up. They're all set, but they're, their season's done. What are they going to do? And they just are lost um, in this sort of purgatory space. So that's one thought I had. And the other I had is how important your message is right now, because so many people are having things pulled out under them. I mean, your city in Vegas, the city you probably visited a lot, like I read this morning that all of those hotels are closed for 30 days. I mean, those people's jobs are pulled out and I don't know, some of those hotels might not even survive this. And, you know, you think about Hilton or Marriott or the airline industry or a restaurant industry. I mean, this thing's hitting so many different people and you, while not going through exactly what they went through or what they're going to go through, can at least have empathy for them and can explain to them that perspective and maybe what you learned and what maybe you wouldn't have done if you could do it all over again or what was healthy for you or what might not have been healthy. And I think you're positioned in a really interesting space to help people because a lot of people are going to have to transition and they weren't, that wasn't their plan. Uh, they, they weren't planning on transitioning. They were planning to show up and just keep doing the work. And right now maybe they're frozen or they just can't, can't do anything. And I love what you said because it's so true if we're in service to others and that's our job and all those people that I just mentioned, hotel industry, hospitality, airline, uh, restaurants, they're all in service to people. And if they can just think about and open up the possibility of how can I be in service to people right now? I'm not saying that they're going to survive because there's things that are going to be out of their control that they might not be able to, but at least it gives them something to do. That's not just going to paralyze them. And I have clients right now and that's, we're doing a Zoom call with all my clients on Friday because I sat back here and said, all right, can I bring all these people together and have them share what's working? What, what, what are some questions? What are some opportunities? What are some possibilities that exist? And for me, that's my job to be in service to them. And a lot of these people have rescheduled. They're putting their head down. They're trying to figure it out. I'm like, cool if you want to do that, but this is available to you if you want. These people are all in different industries. And that's my way of taking action at a time where things are frozen for me in a certain way. Um, you know, I, I think we all are in service to something and someone. And if we keep reminding ourselves that that's our job, even if it's not transactional, even if there's not something that's coming back our way, that's our job is to just be in service and eventually things will settle. And the ones that served during this time will be rewarded. And the ones that didn't will be remembered as not being in service. And so that's been like a big lesson learned for me that hopefully we can continue to share and spread. I, I love that so much. And you know, the, the toughest transition to make is a transition of identity. Um, and there's, we have so much inertia intertwined with what we do and i think there's a really big opportunity to keep an open mind about are there ways to serve that aren't our preferred way of serving and to be open to that opportunity it's such a beautiful place for us to to wind this conversation down I want you to tell everyone what you're up to, what your company's doing. Uh, we've we've plugged the workbook, um, but give people an idea on where they can find you online. Uh, we we mentioned we found each other on Twitter. Uh, just plug whatever it is that that you want to share with the world. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Um, I would love to I'd love to talk about the workbook again. Um, if there's something that you're looking to improve in your own life or business. I think that's, this is the most compressed form of information that I can give you. Um, I spent a year deconstructing the best of what all my clients, some of, unfortunately for me, some of the most successful people in the world, what their routines, habits, systems are for improving peak performance and, you know, step-by-step step, that you can follow these and add them into your own life. Um, I also, I'll come back to the question of, you know, where do we start? What is the best thing to be working on right now? Because there are so many ways to improve. And right now it's very easy to get overwhelmed. And for that, we made a free quiz that we call the performance assessment. 
Um, so you can take this at theforcingfunction.com slash assessment. And uh, it's our quiz to illuminate what your biggest opportunity is right now, what you could be doing in order to help you reach the next level. Um, I can be found on all of the major social media channels at Sparks Remarks. Uh, my company is called The Forcing Function. And, you know, please, I always, I always like to say that I hope this is the beginning of a conversation of something that we said today resonated. You know, please reach out. I'd love to continue this. Chris, when I connect with people online, you just never know who they are and what they're about. And you are hitting on something at the end there, which is our identity is so wrapped to what we do, but it really isn't about what we do. It's really about who we are. And so I want to thank you because I think you are a curious guy, a knowledgeable guy, um, but it seems like your heart is in the right place. And uh, it's been fun getting to know you over the past hour or so and looking forward to learning more about what you're up to and collaborating where it's appropriate and, and continuing to learn from you. And um, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers, and everybody can listen to these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. Chris, man, great to connect with you. Uh, remind me to never go into a poker room that you're in. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I guess that goes for anybody who's listening. Hopefully this podcast can be big enough that nobody will go into rooms with Chris Sparks or any of his aliases <laughs> in the future. Free, free lessons. I just, I keep all the winnings. Awesome. Chris, thanks so much for your time, man. Pleasure. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. All of my personal experiments and learnings are able to be converted into a form that allows others to achieve their dreams. And I find that super fulfilling and it's very, it's very on mission to me. And whenever I get lost, um, I think this, this is a good piece of advice that I've learned and, and always share is that whenever you're feeling down, you know, I think the word depressed is ever used, but whenever you feel, you know, stuck or overwhelmed, you know, like, take the focus away from yourself and think about, you know, what you can be doing for others. 